Good morning. Aren't they, aren't they awesome? You know, the best part about it is they're coming back after I get through. So maybe I'll hurry up. What do you think? Well, if you uh, weren't here last week, let me uh, wish you a happy new year. As we move into 2011, 2010 went by awfully quick. Uh, 2011 is going to go probably by quicker. And that's just life, isn't it? It just seems to whiz by. And uh, sometimes we got to catch our breath and, and try to figure out where we are. Anyway, um, we're doing a series uh, this, this, these uh, three weeks, and we started a series last week on investing in the kingdom of God. And um, it's a three-part series, and really it's geared towards giving us some direction going into 2011 since it's a new year. And, uh, you know, this our whole idea of investing in the kingdom, I think, is, is, is a really important topic and one that Christians need to take wholeheartedly because the passages, some of the passages that we're looking at really look at the end times and Jesus coming back again. And we're going to have to give an account and I think that time is probably coming a lot quicker and a lot closer than we realize. And so this whole idea of investing in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't need to tell you what investing is. You know what that, that's all about. I'm not talking about money, but I am talking about investing in many different things. And there's lots of topics we could bring into a series like this, but I haven't, I haven't got that much time. I only have three Sundays. And so the first Sunday, we looked at investing your life in the kingdom. And, uh, and we looked at Matthew chapter uh, 25. And I'm not going to, I don't usually um, uh, go back and review, but I just want to review this real quick and then move on. Because throughout the series, I'll be referring back to the different messages. But in Matthew 25, investing your life in the kingdom of God, we saw five principles that I gave you. Josh, you can... Pull those up if you don't mind. Uh, first of all, to recognize that God, God owns it all. He owns everything. Everything that you and I possess belongs to God. Secondly, we saw that recognizing, recognize that opportunities are given according to your ability. That God has given you uh, certain talents and he gives them according to your ability. God will give you as much as he can trust you with. Uh, Josh, you want to go down to the summary, way down. Thirdly, recognize that faithfulness always leads to a promotion. Being responsible leads to more responsibility. The greater privilege, the greater the responsibility. Fourthly, recognizing that accomplishing a little is better than accomplishing nothing at all. The only failure in the Christian life is giving up. And then the last principle I gave you was that recognize that the more you apply yourself, the better you get. You either use it when it comes to the talents that God has given you, and a talent being opportunities that God gives you to use your talents, your God-given talents, your gifts, your skills, whatever it is that God has given you uh, to serve in the church, to serve people in the kingdom, to serve as people, even to serve people who are outside of the kingdom. And so we looked at investing your life in the kingdom of God. This week, we're going to look at investing your life or investing your time, your time in, in 
in the kingdom of God, investing your time in the gospel of God, investing your time in the gospel of God. And my text this morning is Acts chapter 17. So if you take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 16 through 34. This is a great, great passage of scripture. It's what I call Paul's message from Mars. It was a message given on Mars Hill. I call it Paul's message from Mars because that's what it sounded like to them. It sounded like Paul was an alien giving a message, and they didn't understand it. And so we want to look at investing your life in uh, investing your time in the gospel of God from Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I'm going to read it for you. I'm reading from the ESV, uh, the English Standard Version, and it goes like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he, w- as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, in, and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Paul, being a little bit sarcastic there, as he often is in his writings. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made for one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. 
among whom whom also were Dionysus the Agrigite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's, uh, Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to our hearts about this idea of investing our time in the gospel so that you might be glorified and that ultimately the whole earth might be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've had the experience that I've often had in Thailand. When, te- when talking to somebody about my faith, and, and I, 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 I see their eyes and I realize that what I am saying, what I'm saying and what they're hearing is not what, I, it's not what they think I'm saying. Now, let me say that again. What people are hearing is not what you think you're saying. Do you ever have that experience? Could you tell me what is the most quoted, most beloved passage of Scripture in all the Bible? What is it? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you take that verse and run it through the grid of an average Thai person, this is what they'll hear. All right? Actually, I was, it's funny, I was in a church in New Hampshire many years ago, preaching in a church, and then I was downstairs giving a presentation. And after the presentation, I just asked for questions, and many people asked questions, and this one older lady who was um, very old school, she, she raised her hand, she said, if you're a missionary, quote John 3.16 in Thai. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I said, Afterwards, this woman came up to me and she says, she says, oh, you're the real McCoy. Now, I don't know if that, I don't know if that makes a real missionary or not. But she said, I was going to, if you couldn't quote, you know, in your Taiwanese language, John 3.16, I was going to recommend to the church that they not support you anymore. So I said, oh, I said, so now you're going to triple it, right? <laughs> and she was, she was a great old lady. But anyway, if you take, if you take John 3.16 in Thai, run it through a Thai person's grid, this is what they hear. That for God, the, the Thai word for God is jiao. It's actually two words. It means sacred spirit. So when you mention the word God, they're thinking about the sun, the moon, the stars. They're thinking about the auspicious tree down the street. They're thinking about the temple, the monks. They're thinking about um, almost anything. But what they're not thinking about is what you're thinking about, and that's the God who created the heavens and the earth. So you've got a real problem with communication. For God so loved. Now, the reason for sin or suffering in, in, in Buddhist philosophy is because of desire, which comes from love. So this God is full of sin. This God's full of desire. For God so loved the world, well, the world's just an illusion. It's really not real. It's an illusion. For God so loved the world that he gave. Well, in, in Thailand, the only reason you give is to get. 
right? So when I go away, I bring a basket of fruit to my neighbors and say, please watch my house. And when I come back, I give them something else. And when I, when I want to, uh, every year at Christmas, we give to the, to the, uh, the immigration department, we give, them, we give them presents, we give them gifts, because we want them to have favor on us. You give in order to get. It's just the way of life here. And uh, that's why politicians will often buy your vote. And so the whole idea of, of giving, just, just to give for the sake of giving, grace giving, is really a foreign concept here. So for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son, so, so God had a wife, that whosoever believes in him, well, Buddha taught, don ben ti in other words, you have to depend upon yourself. You have to earn your own salvation. You have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps type of philosophy. That's why people make merit in order to earn something. That, and they have no idea what that is or when that's going to happen or how many times they have to do it. So the whole idea of, of uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, the whole idea of believing in something outside of yourself and not within, uh, within yourself, the whole idea of believing of something outside yourself and not within yourself is very foreign. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's exactly what they're trying to get away from. Here, you come along offering them eternal life and that's exactly what they're trying to get away from. They're trying to earn nirvana, which really means to, uh, if I had a, a candle with a flame on it and I just extinguished the flame, that's nirvana. It means to cease to exist, to become nothing, to be absorbed into the all-pervasive nothingness. But you did, you, do you really believe that's what people want? I don't think so. Why? Because God has put... God has put his image on them. He's put eternity in their hearts. And yet, here you come along, and you're trying to communicate. And, and what you're saying and what they're hearing is two totally different things. And it's like you're passing like ships in the night. And you're not even on the same page. My goodness, you're not even in the same same atmosphere, you're not even on the same planet. And that's often the, what we find ourselves in, in in a place like Asia. Now, the reason I say that is because many of us have been brought up in a Judeo-Christian worldview or a Judeo-Christian ethic. Many of us have grown up in Christian families, come out of Christian families, or what have you, and we've been steeped into some sort of Judeo-Christian culture. And I realize that there are probably many here who have not been that way. But I think for the most part, many of us have come from cultures where we understand somewhat of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And, uh, but as culture becomes more and more biblically illiterate, the categories change. And so all the categories that you and I use, categories like God, Jesus, sin, repentance, redemption, salvation, all these categories that we assume 
people know, all these categories have changed. Because we're functioning in a biblically illiterate culture. Now, Thailand, Asia in general, is biblically illiterate. They have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about prajau, when you talk about sin, when you talk about salvation, when you talk about redemption, when you talk about all these things that you hold dearly in your heart and believe in, when we talk about those things to the average Joe out in the street or the marketplace, I got news for you. They have no idea what you are talking about. You're like an alien from Mars trying to communicate something that they know nothing of because we live in a biblically illiterate culture. And many of the cultures, I dare say that many of the cultures that you and I come from, like America, Europe, and if you're from other places in the world, Australia, are increasingly becoming more and more secular progressive. We're living in postmodern cultures. Now, let me, let me just share a couple of definitions of what I'm talking about, just so that, so that we're on the same page, so, so we understand postmodernism. And what I mean by postmodernism is this. In postmodernism, there's a tendency in contemporary culture characterized by the rejection of objective truth and traditional values. They reject it. Progressive secularism or social progressivism or, or, or uh, what's often referred to as SPs, uh, secular progressivism, is a view that social norms and moral values are not fixed throughout history and that they should be revised as new scientific knowledge, especially about human nature and, 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 and critical inquiry, expands our understanding of society and culture. So, so in a sense... There's no absolutes. The only absolute is the fact that there's no absolutes, which is totally ironic. Right? And so everything, everything is on, sort of on a slippery slope. And that's what we find ourselves living in, often today, and what we see. And, and Paul's message in Mars Hill speaks more imminently to our times than it did during our parents' times, when they grew up in a traditional Judeo-Christian ethic, where the categories were understood. They understood what you meant when you said God. They understood what you meant when you said salvation. They understood the cross. They understood sin. They understood church. They understood Jesus. They understood the categories. They had a framework for the categories. But as, as our cultures, as we live in cultures that become more and more postmodern, more and more secularly progressive, the categories change. And what was once understood is no longer understood. And so you can't assume anything. Uh, people today don't have a clue. Um, the categories all mean something different depending on who you're talking to. So, you know, years ago when you, when you talked about uh, you know, Moses. People knew who Moses was. You to ask people who was Moses today, they think, they think he was Charleston Heston in the movie or something like that. But the categories have changed. The meanings have changed. And we can't assume anything. Uh, 
And the interesting thing is that in the first century, when Paul went to Athens in the first century, the situation was much, not much different than it is today. Okay? The situation in Paul's time was not much different. They were biblically illiterate. When Paul went to Athens, he was going to a pagan society that had no categories. They were what we would call biblically illiterate People. They had no idea who Abraham was, who Moses was, what the New Testament, the Old Testament was. They had no clue whatsoever. They were biblically illiterate people. And, uh, and that's the situation that Paul finds himself in. And, 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 it, and it's interesting because uh, often we hear people say today, you know, it's so difficult for people to believe today. People are so skeptical uh, they're so skeptical that, that, that because of the claims of Jesus, they, they find it almost impossible to believe in the claims of Christianity today. And yet, that's exactly the situation that Paul found himself in, in Athens. The exact same situation. It's not much different than today. And Paul struggled with the two obstacles that every person in this room, has struggled with, and every person from the beginning of time will struggle with until the end of time. Two claims of Christianity that every person struggles with, and if you have not struggled with these two claims or these two, these two issues, then I would dare say that you have not thought deeply enough about the Christian faith and... You need to think about these things. And the first one is the exclusiveness of the gospel. The biggest obstacle that Paul faced was that they thought the gospel was too exclusive. That sound vaguely familiar today? People look at us, they say we're too exclusive. You know, you talk about Religions, all religions are good and teach you to be good. It's like the salt shaker. You take the salt and you pour it on a steak. All the salt ends up on the steak. Really, as many roads to heaven, really doesn't matter what you believe. One day we're all going to get there. But for you to come along and say that Christianity is the only way, that's too exclusive. And they refer to us as being right-winged, bigoted, narrow-minded, fundamentalists. And the other obstacle is the lordship of Christ. The lordship of Christ. Bowing the knee to Christ. Those are the two big obstacles that people often face when it comes to the gospel. And the culture in which Christianity was born was every bit as skeptical, every bit as hostile as the culture that we find ourselves living in today. And it was every bit as difficult for thoughtful people to come to a place where they would wrestle with the exclusiveness of Christ and the lordship of Christ and believe. I dare say that it's not much different today than it was in the day of Paul. That's why this passage of Scripture is so, so absolutely incredible because of the way Paul approached it. And so I want to bring out four aspects today from this passage to give us a framework for what to, to how to look at this. And then the first thing I want you to see is the situation that Paul faced. The situation that Paul faced in verse 16 and 17. It says this. 
uh, in Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day, every day with those who happened to be there. And so Paul goes to Athens. And now Athens was just an incredible city. It still is today. It's just it's, it's a fascinating city. Athens was at one time uh, a military power. At this point in time, when Paul got to Athens, it was very much in decline. It was no longer a military power. It was in decline. But it was known, it was known for its spectacular architecture. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. It, was like, it would be like going to Rome today and seeing the cathedrals and all the architecture. It was, just, it was just absolutely breathtaking. The Parthenon, which you can go and see today in Athens, had already been existence when Paul arrived, 500 years. 500 years. And so Paul comes to this incredible city, Athens. And Athens was the premier intellectual and cultural center of the, of the ancient world. It really was. Even though it was in decline, it was still considered by many at that time to be, the, to be almost the center of the universe. It was, it was the intellectual and cultural center of the ancient world. And so Paul essentially is it's almost equivalent to Paul, Paul going to, to uh, Harvard or to Yale and addressing the faculty at Harvard and Yale. I mean, it was that intellectual. It was that prestigious. And so Paul goes to Athens. And, um, and at the center of, at the center of this, this cultural city, this intellectual center, is a place that we call the Agora, or the marketplace. The marketplace. It's called the Agora. Now, the Agora was a very unique place. It was unlike anything that we would find in Western culture today. Now, you can find some of it in, in, in Asian culture, but even then, if you go to, for instance, the Waterroot Market, or you go to the Sansai Market, or you go to the Tunpeyong Market, or you go to any market in Chiang Mai, it would be nothing like the Agora in Athens in Paul's day. The Agora was a really unique place. It was essentially, it was essentially a media center. That's where people went and that's where you heard the news. If you wanted to find out what was going on in the ancient world, you went to the Agora. You went to the marketplace. People would stand up on soapboxes and they would just shout out the news of the day. If you wanted to find out what was going on, you went to the Agora. It was, it was the place where news, there was no CNN, newspapers weren't out then, magazines, no, not, nothing in print. You wanted to find something out, you went to the Agora and people would just shout it out. It was also the financial center, it was the business center. It's where business took place. Transactions all took place in the Agora. Slaves were bought and traded in the Agora. Deals were made in the Agora over, over meals. And it was, it was the financial center of the ancient world. It was also the art center. It's where people performed and, and showed off their wares and their goods. 
and uh, they would set up displays and they would do performing arts. And all this went on in the marketplace. Uh, it, was also, it was also the intellectual centers where people got together and they, and they, and they, and they reasoned and they talked and they, they talked about philosophies. And so that's what, that's what the Agora, the marketplace, was. And Paul, so Paul goes to the Agora and, uh, in Athens. And um, uh, it's interesting because the Agora was such, such an incredible place. And when he got there, in verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. He was provoked within him. He, it, it, it's, it's similar to when Jesus saw the sheep without a, without a shepherd, and the Bible says he was, he was moved with compassion. And Paul already goes to this incredible city with this incredible architecture, and what he notices more than anything else is that the city was steeped in idolatry. It was just absolutely steeped in idolatry. Um, and he was moved with compassion. The word provoked here also means to be angered. It's a, it's a, it's a righteous anger, a righteous indignation that wells up when you see that God's glory is being robbed. He was infuriated. There was a, a Greek philosopher named Petronius who once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's how full of idols this place was. Easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And so this is the situation that Paul finds himself in. And as a result, as a result of going to Athens, he attracted, he attracted some attention, as Paul always did. And he's confronted by these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And, uh, and so we go into the second, second area that I want you to see. Paul, you see, first of all, the situation that Paul faced. He faced a city full of idols and he was, he was moved within. Secondly, the strategy that Paul adopted, we find it in verse 17 through 21, particularly verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so Paul goes, he sees that the city is rampant with idols, and he begins to preach at every opportunity that he has. And he had a strategy. Paul had a very clear strategy when he went someplace to preach the gospel. And his strategy was always to go to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so he goes into the Agora, he goes to Athens, and the first thing he does, when he sees all the idolatry, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, and there he reasons in the synagogue. Reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers. And so Paul would often go to the synagogue, and he would preach to the Jews. And these were people who were well-versed in the Old Testament. They knew they knew the categories. This is a different group of people. They knew the categories. They had, they had the understanding. They had the background. And so when Paul went to Athens, he first went to the Jews and he preached. 
And in the synagogues with Jews, there was also proselytes. Proselytes were those who were Gentile followers of Christ. They became circumcised and they followed the way of Christ. And then there was also God-fearers, people who, who weren't, they were seekers. They weren't quite willing to, to, to cross that line, but they were interested, they were fascinated with the monotheism of Jew, Jew, uh, Judaism. And so Paul goes in and he preaches. And it's interesting that in, 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 in Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Athens, when he was at the synagogue, he preached one way. When he was in the marketplace, he preached another way. Much like you see in Acts, if you back up to Acts chapter 13, when Paul is in, when Paul is in uh, Antioch in Pisidia, there he's addressing Jews. He's addressing proselytes. And he's addressing God-fearers. And he's, he's preaching out of a different context. And here he's talking about, he says, for instance, in, in verse 16, he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And he goes through a whole history that these people knew and understood. But in Athens, when he goes into the marketplace, and he's preaching among biblically illiterate people who don't understand the terms, he uses a totally different strategy. That's what I want you to see. So he goes into the synagogue, he reasons in the synagogue, and then he goes into the marketplace. He reasons in the marketplace with any who happen to be there. He goes into the agora, and he begins to preach. And he preached Christ and the resurrection. And so there were some of these Epicurean Stoic philosophers. If we go back to Acts chapter 17, verse uh, 19, some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Uh, excuse me, verse 17. Some, yeah, 18. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babble wish to say? Others said he seems to be preach, a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so he got the attention of these, these philosophers, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans were an, uh, a unique bunch. They, they believed that the gods were very remote. They're almost like deists. They believed that the gods were remote, really not so much concerned with, with the, you know, pretty uninvolved in life. The Stoics really didn't believe in a god at all. They just, there was just a general spirit out there. And so they're listening to Paul, and he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, and they're not understanding anything he's saying because they have no biblical framework to understand it. And they say, what is this babbler trying to say? The word babbler means seed picker. They're basically saying, what is this seed picker trying to say? It's like, it's like a bird. It's a picture of a bird who lands and picks up a seed here and goes over and picks up a seed there and picks up a seed here. He's a seed picker. He's a babbler. He doesn't know what he's saying. He hasn't got it put together. And basically what they were saying is that Paul, Paul didn't have his, his philosophy put together. Now, a philosophy back in that day wasn't really an intellectual pursuit of, of, of an intellectual pursuit at that, but it was more of a worldview. It was a worldview. And so what they were saying is that he, he hasn't got his worldview put together. It's not, it's not coherent. He's a babbler. 
He's got a little here, he's got a little there, but it doesn't make any sense. And they say, what's this babbler trying to say? And uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So what happens? So verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a hill in the Agora. And you went up there, and there was a big stadium up there, and you would often do big addresses in the Areopagus. It was, it was a very special place. And so they took him, they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul goes to the Areopagus, and he gives an address. And that's the third aspect of this message I want you to see, is the message that Paul preached. The message that Paul preached. Josh, can you follow me here, son? The message that Paul preached. And he goes to the Areopagus. And what you have to understand about this passage is this, that when Paul went to the Areopagus, I can read through his address in Athens in about two minutes, probably less. But when you went to the Areopagus, you gave an address. An address would often go on for literally hours and hours. He could have been speaking there for two or three hours for all we know. And I believe what we have in Acts chapter 17 is nothing more than an outline of what Paul said. And all of the corpus of the New Testament unpacks what it is that he was talking about. But really, what we have here, I believe, is an outline of what Paul was saying in the, in the Areopagus. And he goes there in verse 20. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now he opens up with a, a very interesting statement. He says, oh, I see that you are... It's a compliment. He's complimenting them. He's saying, oh, I see you're very religious. You know, it's, it's, but it's a setup. It's a setup for what's to come. It's just, a, it's just a, a complimentary introduction to get him to where he wants to go. And so it's a setup. Um, you know, guys, you, you know all about that, right? You know, when you... Uh, you know, when you're home and you go up to your wife when she's not looking and you put your arms around her and you whisper sweet nothings in her ear and she just melts in your arms, you know, and then you go and you do the dishes and, and then she kind of, she looks at you and says, what do you want? <laughs> you know, it's a setup, you know. I want, I want an iPad, you know. And, and that's what Paul's doing. He's setting them up. He's saying, oh, I perceive that you're very religious. It really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. He's just saying, oh, I see you're religious people. I wouldn't say that today. If I went, if I went up to somebody and said, oh, I see that you're a very religious person, I'd probably, I'd probably be accused of being a bigot or a narrow-minded evangelical or something like that. What I would do is I'd go up to somebody and say, oh, I, I, I see that you're a very spiritual person. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a compliment so that you can get where you want to go. And so Paul, he says, oh, I see you're very religious people. And um, it's a courtesy statement. And he goes into a discourse on the topic of the unknown God. Now in Athens, 
the Athenians had gods for everything. I mean, there was thousands of gods in Athens. They had uh, the god of Neptune, which was the god of the sea. They had uh, the god Apollos, the god of music. They had uh, the god of Eros, which was the god of sensual, uh, sensuality. They, they, had, they had thousands and thousands of gods. Uh, and and, 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 and uh, 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 Hinduism, there's, there's ma- literally millions of gods. But in the Greek world, the ancient world, there was literally thousands and thousands of gods. And f- so if you wanted to do something like go on a voyage, then you would, then you would pay homage to a certain god. If you were going to give an address, you would pay homage to a certain god. Whatever it is that you were going to do, you would, you would pay allegiance to that god. And so, but they had one altar to the unknown God, just, just to make sure that they had all their bases covered. Because there might have been a God out there that they knew not of. And so Paul comes along, and instead of introducing a new God, he says, I'm going to tell you about the God that you reverence, but you don't know who he is. And so he goes and he talks about the unknown God, and um, the God they did not know. And there's a contradiction here. This is, this is the big contradiction that's in this passage. If you look at verse uh, 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's going to tell them about the God that they worship, that they don't know. He's going to explain to them who this God is. And this is the big contradiction, which you miss when you just go through a cursory reading of this passage. And it's this. It's what Tim Keller calls the big contradiction. And what Paul is saying is basically this. That which you unknowingly reverence, that which you unknowingly reverence, The God you unknowingly reverence, I proclaim to you. You know him, but you don't know him. You deny him with your mouth and your mind, but you affirm him with your life. You say with your mind and your mouth he's not there, but you believe that he is there. And he says, this is the God I'm going to make known to you. And so he used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. And he unpacks, from verse 24 on, he unpacks to a biblically illiterate culture the gospel. And he begins, and that's the message that Paul preached, he begins and he brings out several things here. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so the first thing he brings out is that God is the creator of the universe. Now remember, he's speaking to a biblically illiterate people. They They have no biblical framework. They don't understand the terminology. They don't understand the terms. And so he says, I'm going to make known to you this God that you reverence, but you deny with your life. And he says, this God is the creator of the universe. 
God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And the earth does not live in temples built by hands. He made the world. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. The heavens can't contain him. It says in Daniel. The heavens can't contain him. And as such, he doesn't dwell in temples built by hands. Now, this flies right in the face of the ancient world because they regionalized their gods. They had temples everywhere in Athens. They had priests, and they regionalized their gods. And so Paul comes along and he says, no, this God that you worship unknowingly, he's the maker of heaven and earth. And he can't be contained in a temple. He's not made by hands. He's not a regional God as if he needed some place to live. Now, don't get this confused with the temple in the Old Testament. That's not what it's talking about. And even, even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he said, this temple can't contain the greatness of God. The heavens can't contain him. He's God. And so he goes into a whole dialogue of God is the creator of the universe. Secondly, he talks about God as being the sustainer. In verse 25, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the sustainer of life. He's the sustainer of life. God made the world... He's not, he, God's, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives life and breath to all men everywhere. It's the doctrine of the aseity of God. It's a, it's a word that we've lost today. And it means from himself, that in and of himself, God does not need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He needs nothing. It's not as if God is lonely. It's not as if God, uh, you know, is waiting for us to come together on Sunday so that he can get his strokes and feel good about himself. That's not it at all. In and of himself, he needs nothing. He is complete. He's the sustainer of everything. He's not dependent upon everyone, anyone. He doesn't get his self-identity from people. In and of himself, he's complete. And he gives to all their life and breath and what they need. Therefore, God's to be worshipped. He's not to be worshipped as though he needs it. We don't come here on Sunday morning to worship God because he needs it. We come here to worship God, to give him the worth due his name. It's not because God needs it. And so Paul goes into this whole discourse and he says, he's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the ruler of all nations. In verse 26 and 27 he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So God is the ruler. He's the ruler of all nations, every nation. 
He causes kings to rise and kings to fall. He moves and turns the hearts of dignities as he turns a river. He's the ruler of all nations. And our first response as as people is to recognize our creatureliness before him. That we are the created. He is the creator. He's the ruler of all things. He's created every nation. And he's determined they rise and fall. Everything is designed to prompt men to seek God, who is actually not far from from us. And so he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler. And then he goes in, in verse 28 and 29, he talks about God as being the father of mankind. And he says in verse 29, 28 and 29, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he quotes... He quotes a couple of pagan philosophers. And he says, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design or skill. No, 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 he's not like that at all. He's the father of all mankind. We, We live and move and have our being in him. Therefore, we shouldn't think that we can create God. You see, that's what was going on in Athens. They were creating their gods. And Paul comes along and he says, this unknown God, he's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the ruler of mankind. He's the father of mankind. And then lastly, he says, he's the judge of the whole world. The judge of the whole world. Verse 30. And he says, the times of ignorance... In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And so God is the judge of the world, and everything's coming to a climax. And what God overlooked in times past, he will no no longer overlook anymore. What ignorance he may have overlooked in the past is no longer the case. And for the first time in this address, and remember, this address probably went on for hours. For the first time in this address, Paul deals with the topic of sin. And basically what he's saying is there's an alienation that's going on. There's an alienation that's going on, and he puts it in terms not of the law, but of idolatry. Idolatry. There's an alienation between God and man. What God once overlooked, he is no longer going to overlook, but he's going to bring judgment. And he commands men everywhere to repent. Why? Because of the coming judgment. Because of the coming judgment. And as proof, he cites the resurrection from the dead. And at that point, at that point, Paul gets opposition. You see, the whole Christian faith falls, lives and dies on the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no reason for us to be here. And as a matter of fact, 
throughout history, there's no plausible explanation for the Christian church today apart from the resurrection of Jesus. There's no way you can explain this and what's going on all over the world apart from the resurrection. If it were not for the resurrection, there's absolutely no reason why we should be here. And so Paul says proof of this will occur because Jesus was risen from the dead. Now what's his argument? What's, what's Paul trying to say? This is what he's saying. he's saying. He's saying, listen, if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, if Jesus was raised from the dead, declaring himself to be God, then it really doesn't matter what you feel or what you believe. What matters is that you repent and believe. If Jesus was risen from the dead, it really doesn't matter what you think. It really doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is that you repent and believe. That's what Paul's saying. And with that, there was just a, an outburst. The same reaction we often get today. And the response that Paul provoked in verses 32 through 34. And he gets three different responses. The first response is rejection. Some mocked. Ah, the resurrection from the dead? That's baloney. They mocked him. Some were reluctant. Yeah, we hear you again on this. They, they were interested, but they weren't really sure they wanted to make that step. Some some believed. Some believed and followed. Some men joined him and believed. And whenever you and I preach the gospel and share our faith with a biblically illiterate world, you're going to get one of those three responses. There's going to be people who mock you. There's going to be people who are reluctant. They have questions, lots of questions. And you'll never be able to answer all their questions and satisfy all their questions. But then there will be some who will receive it and believe it and follow. The reason I'm giving you this message is because this, this, is, this is... What Paul was facing in Athens is often what we face today. It's not much different. And we're going to get the same reaction. And so as you, as you spend time with the gospel, you know, I think it's important to understand that Paul had a strategy. He had a strategy. And the question is, do we have a strategy? Do we have a strategy for sharing our faith with people? who are biblically literate and biblically illiterate. Have you ever sat down and taken time? That's why I entitled this investing, investing your time in the gospel of God. Have you ever sat down and taken the time to develop a strategy whereby you can share your faith with people who are biblically literate and people who are biblically illiterate? Because it takes time. I want to close by giving you two principles to live by as we, uh, as we end this. 
And the first principle is this. If you understand the gospel, if you truly understand the gospel and live consistently with it, it will not stay in your private world and it will affect the way you live in your public life. If you understand the gospel and live consistently with it, it will not stay in your private world. It will not stay in your church. It will not stay in your worship service. It will not stay on Sunday. It will not stay in your home. If you understand the gospel and live in accordance with it, it will affect the way you live, especially in your public life as well as your private life. If you understand the gospel, it will affect how you live. That's the first principle. The second principle is this. Paul understands full well when sharing the gospel with biblically illiterate people, you have to create enough of a biblical framework for people to understand. Otherwise, you're just talking at the wind. Paul understood very well when speaking with biblically illiterate people who don't understand the God categories, you have to create enough of a biblical framework for people to understand. Otherwise, they'll never come to a point where they really understand. What am I saying? So when, you, when you're speaking to a biblically illiterate people, what do you do? You go right back to Genesis 1.1. God. Who's God? Well, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And what did God do? What is God like? Why did God come? And as people understand the framework, the lights begin to go on. That's why um, a lot of what I do, I work a lot in Burma, and I work with biblically illiterate people, and I work with uh, people who, who don't understand. And so we have to teach the Bible chronologically many times, in order to give them a framework. And when I do that with Christians, with Christian people who have been Christians for 20 years, when I, when, I, when I teach the Bible chronologically with Christians, a light goes on and they come up and say, for the first time I've really understood that the Bible is one book and not 66. Even, it is 66, but it's one book. There's one storyline. Unless you give enough of the biblical framework, people don't understand the storyline. And you can never communicate the gospel effectively to a biblically illiterate people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for again for your word. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we live in this culture, in this society, and a world that's moving more and more towards secular progressivism, that you would give us the ability to uh, get rid of the Christianese that we have and to be able to communicate effectively, to spend time understanding the gospel so that we might be able to invest in people's lives so they can understand. Lord, empower us. Give us your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.